from the book of Joel, chapter 2, starting with verse 23. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The word of the Lord. From Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter four, starting with verse six. <clears throat> for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, starting with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. you may be seated. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, today, I want to focus a little bit on this Timothy passage that... Um, Wes read, and we've been talking a little bit about this letter that Paul 
wrote to Timothy at the end of his life. We think that the book of 2 Timothy that we have may be the last book that Timothy has uh, uh, written, or as that Paul has written uh, before he died. And so Paul's nearing the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy, this protege of his, who he actually calls a son. And he tells them that his life, Paul's life, is already being poured out as a libation, is what he says. And this is so interesting. I I don't know if anyone is familiar with the practice of pouring one out for your homies. Are you familiar with this? Okay. Um, in this practice of pouring a small amount of some manner of alcoholic beverage onto the ground in remembrance of a friend who has passed. And this practice came back into vogue in the rap culture of the 80s and 90s. So you hear that in a lot of those, uh, a lot of the songs. Uh, but it turns out that this is really an ancient practice. This goes way, way back. This idea of pouring out a beverage of some sort on behalf of the dead or in remembrance of the dead. Um, the idea of pouring out a liquid is a symbol of death, something being poured out. So the ancient Egyptians poured out water because they believed in the rejuvenating presence and power associated with water, that it was life-giving. Ancient Africans poured out libations in memory of others or to thank the gods or ward off evil spirits. The ancient Greeks offered libations to both the gods and fallen comrades, usually in the form of a sweetened wine, which they'd pour a little out of before drinking in appreciation of whoever they were honoring. This process was even described in Homer's The Iliad. The quote is, where the mother of the legendary warrior Hector tells him, wait till I fetch you some sweet honeyed wine first to pour a libation to Zeus and the other gods, and then for your relief, if you will drink. Jacob actually did this in the Old Testament, in Genesis 35. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with God, even a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Paul, when he says, my life is being poured out, it's this metaphor, but it's this idea that he believes that his life, even the extinguishing of his life, as Paul believes he's at the end at any point, either it's going to come through natural causes or through the empire itself killing him, that he believes that even the extinguishing of his life, his entire life is an offering to God. And it made me wonder this week, can you imagine how we might live if we truly saw every part of our life as a sacrifice to God, that every day was a life being poured out for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God. How much of our time and energy would be spent on pursuing superficial things? And how much of our time would be spent centering our lives on him? I think it's powerful that Paul says this. But Paul quickly switches metaphors. In fact, this passage that we have today, he squeezes in about five metaphors and he moves boom, boom, boom really fast. And Paul tends to do that in a lot of his writings. So instead of a libation that's been poured out, Paul now speaks of a race that he's finished. So he goes from, I'm being poured out as a libation, um, but now also I'm running a race. He's writing from prison. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we mentioned that Paul was writing from a prison that was under a sewer, Okay. And there was like a pipe in these sewers. And a lot of times they would choose, the empire would just choose to drain the sewer and it would drain into the prisons. And if they really wanted to, they could drain all of it and they could drown the prisoners and they were known to do that. So Paul is literally in a toilet prison. That's where he is. At the end of his life, everybody has abandoned him and this is what he is writing. He says, I have run the race 
And then I'm pursuing this crown of righteousness that's waiting for him. The crown speaks to the one that is received at the end of the race, the winner. So in Greek athletics, when you won a race, you would receive a crown, usually of some sort of leaves and you know, uh, branches that were put on your head. But Paul's crown is different. Paul is not saying I'm the one winner of the race, which means I'm the best of all the Christians. So that's where the metaphor breaks down a little bit. He's not saying I'm the one who's going to receive the crown. No, he says this is a different kind of reward, a crown of righteousness. What is that? Well, there are different kinds of rewards, aren't there? If it's, it's a different thing to study a foreign language because your mom says she'll buy you a new bike if you pass that exam, okay? That's one kind of reward, right? That thing that happens. It's another thing to study a foreign language because you're going to live in a foreign country and you wanna live life to the fullest in that, full, for, or in that foreign country, right? There are two different kinds of rewards. One is not really connected to the action, it's a benefit that you get because you did something. The other one is organically connected. It's just part of enjoying that new life is the reward itself. Both are rewards, but they're different. In the first instance, the deed and the reward are not organically connected. And in the second, the reward is received in a way that's natural. There's just an out outgrowth of the study that's been done. Many of you, another example, many of you have been in the process or have done the process of doing repairs on your house. I know we have several people in our community that have bought houses recently and they're in the process, oh, we gotta fix this thing up before we feel good about it or we gotta paint this or we have to do this process. It's one thing to do repairs on your home so you can immediately flip it and get instant cash, isn't it? That's one thing. It's another thing to do repairs on your home in which you're going to live, right? In the second case, the reward is intrinsic to the activity. No one is presenting you with a reward for doing that work, but you will enjoy the reward as you live your life in that home. I think sometimes it's concerning when we talk about, in Christian culture especially, about God giving us rewards. I think some of the ways we talk about that are unhealthy. Because sometimes we get the impression that if I just worship him or serve him with everything that I have, he will give me the equivalent of a new bike, right? He will give me this reward because I did so good. I've been around countless Christians who seek to do what's right, who worship with all their hearts in hopes that if I do that, God will give me my wildest dreams <laughs> or I will get a check in the mail or especially when I was attending a Christian college, God will give me a really attractive or successful spouse, right? I remember when it was popular, and I don't think it is anymore, thank the Lord, it was popular to pray for a parking spot at the mall, right? That if you got one, I remember <laughs> yesterday I was doing a wedding, and I realized that the shirt that I was supposed to wear for the wedding and had planned to wear for the wedding uh, had shrunk in the wash. So I had to quickly, right before I needed to go to the wedding, I had to go buy a new shirt. So I had to go to the mall on a Saturday and we're getting close to Christmas, right? So it was crazy. And then I was, I had already written this sermon. <laughs> I'm driving in there and I'm praying for a parking spot in the mall. <laughs> um, and then I remember the, the thing was, if you got what you wanted, if you got the parking space in the mall, if you got the check in the mail, it's thank you, Lord, I am blessed and highly favored, right? That's who I am. <laughs> but what if a kingdom of God reward looks different from that? 
What if a life oriented towards the kingdom would be hoping and praying not for you to get a parking spot, but for the little old lady to get the parking spot? What if that's what God's blessing actually looks like, making a difference for the other? Sometimes we come to faith for weird reasons, okay? We want a reward. I know people that have come to faith because they just, I just want to get to heaven, want to get that reward. We want to avoid what we've been taught about eternal punishment, right? Sometimes we do it to make mom or dad happy. Maybe if I do this, that'll make my parents happy. And I believe that God meets us in the midst of these ill motives. No matter how weird or twisted our reasons for coming to him are, I believe that God can meet us there. Even if Kanye has become a gospel singer just for the money or attention, I don't know if he has, but I'm confident God could still use it. But that kind of reward is not God's intention, ultimately. That's not how rewards work in the Christian life. It's not just a, you did this, and so therefore you're going to get this. Paul speaks of a crown of righteousness. Righteousness is a word that carries a lot of baggage in our church culture, and so maybe we dismiss the word out of hand, we hear it, and it sounds like a really churchy, religious word. But the word righteousness literally means to declare in the right. It's a legal term. And Paul is saying, no matter who has turned against him, no matter the suffering he's faced from the empire and the rejection he has faced, even from his fellow Christians and travelers, he will one day be declared by the righteous judge to be in the right. And Paul says, that's all that matters. No matter what the empire says, no matter what these people who have rejected me says, I have run this race and one day the only one who matters, the only one who counts will declare me as in the right. In an Eastern Orthodox wedding, they have this incredibly beautiful tradition where the priest places crowns on the head of the bride and the groom. It's just amazing. I think we should do that. If you guys, any of you guys get married, we're just gonna do that, okay? No. Um, but, but, the, but he places the crowns on the head of the bride and the groom, blessing them. And the priest says this three times, the servant of God, the groom's name, is crowned unto the handmaiden of God, the bride's name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And he says that three times. Why do that? Well, it's two things. It's, first of all, it is a symbol of the crowns that we will receive in heaven, in God's new world. And secondly, it's to signify that the bride and groom have become the queen and king of a new created family. And I love also another image at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if any of you have read this book or seen the movies, when the four Pevensey children are crowned in this image of the future reign of God's children, Aslan, the God figure, says to the four children, bear it well, speaking of the crown, bear it well, sons of Adam, bear it well, daughters of Eve. It's important to remember in the biblical stories that the crowns that God's children are said to receive are not crowns of status against others. This isn't a way of we don't get jewels in the crown which show that we're better or more accomplished than everyone else. That's not what this is about. Rather, the crowning is the declaration that God has done something, that God has acted in our lives in a profound way. It is the reestablishment of the human vocation. Human beings were always called to reign with God, to, be, um, to reign under God and under God's authority, but to reign for him as representatives of him. So it's the reestablishment of what human beings have been called to do all along, to rule with Christ. Now, 
This is a challenge to us, and I hope this calls us higher and this challenges us to think about what a reward actually looks like, to think about what an intrinsic reward means, that we're living for the kingdom of God in a way that's different than just trying to get that new bike by our good works. But we also realize that we always have to trust God's grace, that we're gonna mess up at this, that we don't always rule and reign as God's representative, that we miss the mark, but that he has given us everything we need And even in those times we fail, God is lovingly nudging us back to that vocation. You are called to something different. You are called to run the race. You are called to pursue this crown. So here we have Paul sitting at his lowest point, toilet prison, reflecting on the race that he's run, which looks like a failure in the world's eyes. And he's reflecting on the crown that he's received. And he says that God is the righteous judge. Up until this point, Paul has faced a lot of unrighteous judges. (laughs) Paul says that all those verdicts of all the emperors and all the governors who have put him in prison, all of that doesn't matter because they don't get it. But there is one judge who is righteous, who does get it. And what he says is all that matters. Many of us may not find ourselves in an unjust court of law, but we do have a lot of false things said about who we are that we aren't smart enough, aren't accomplished enough, aren't desirable enough. Some of these tapes and these lies that we play come all the way back from childhood or from um, those who abused us or rejected us. Some of these tapes just come from what we experience in modern culture everywhere we go that says that to be really to be who you're supposed to be, you're supposed to look like this, you're supposed to achieve this, you're supposed to perform this way. Modern culture tells us we aren't anything until we've achieved enough. Modern consumerism tells us we aren't anything until we've accumulated enough. But it's so important as Christians that we are reminded what we are in this for, why we live the life that we live, why we follow Jesus. We are not in this for worldly success or for fame or for approval. We follow Christ because we believe that it is the better way. But the tricky thing about this is that when we live the better way, all the other forces in this world will fight against the better way. So in some ways, living for Christ often feels like it's swimming upstream. It doesn't always feel like it fits or it makes sense. We'll go through a lot of stuff in this life, but God has been and will be faithful. That's what we trust in. Paul then reflects on this fact that no one has supported him, okay? So Paul's had a certain level of um, connection and of even success, we could say, in the churches that he's planted all throughout his life. But here at the end of his life, it's like he has nobody, is what he's telling Timothy. And we don't know if he just feels that way or if that's really what's going on, is that everyone's abandoned him, because that's what he says. And what is his response? His response is to say, everybody's abandoned me, but don't hold it against them, says in that passage. Don't hold it against them. I think about Jesus on the cross after everything that he endured, shouting, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I don't think I could do that, to be honest with you. Um, I don't think that God sends people to hell, but sometimes I would like him to give me that job, right? Right? <laughs> Like, like I'd, be able, I'd like to look at people and go, 
Kate, is, is that shocking to you? Like, like, I think we all sometimes go, all right, I don't know, that person, they need to pay for what they've done, right? How many of us could really do what Paul does when we've been rejected or hurt or shoved aside, still say in that moment, don't hold it against them? Many of you may have heard of this uh, a famous Bible teacher by the name of Beth Moore. And she is incredibly gifted and genuine and has an amazing story and an incredible following. Uh, I remember being a youth pastor in the early 2000s and just being amazed by the fact that this Southern Baptist woman from Texas had thousands of people attending her conferences <laughs> and just, just amazed by it. And honestly, at the time, I mean, I was youth pastor. I was really into everything that was edgy at the time. <laughs> and so honestly, I thought she was a little cheesy when I first heard her, right? Really sweet, Southern, conservative lady. But so many women in our church were learning so much about scripture from her. And I just found that. And it, it took me a while, but eventually I sat down and really listened to her. And I really believe she is one of the most gifted Bible teachers of our age. Really believe that. And her story's powerful. And recently she's raised her voice on a number of important issues. And I believe that the church is better for her voice. Well, one of the challenges she's bumped into is she's Southern Baptist, and that means that there's some tricky politics around women preachers, right? And I know that most of you are not engaged in the wars of Christian Twitter, and as your, your pastor, I think that's a good thing that you're not, right? But this week, a prominent male pastor was asked about Beth Moore. In fact, they played a little game on a stage somewhere, and at this conference where the moderator said one word, and then the Bible teacher was supposed to respond with whatever the first word was that come to mind. So the moderator said, Beth Moore, which already he broke the rules because that's two words, that's not one word, right? And the Bible teacher responded with, go home. <laughs> he then unleashed a monologue against feminism and later said some racist things. It was just awful, just terrible. And uh, Beth Moore later responded and uh, do you know what she said? In one tweet, she said, I'm called by God and not by man. That's all she said. And in another tweet, she said, guys, stop, stop slandering that guy. That's all she said. I can't think of a better modern example of someone who knows what race they're running <laughs> and chooses to love those who reject them. That's just, that inspired me this week. And I thought about her when I thought, it's not the same situation as Paul being called out on Twitter a lot and all that stuff is not quite the same thing as what Paul's experiencing. But I think the way she responded is pretty darn close. Paul goes on to say that he had strength because God stood by him. And there may be times in life where we have to stop looking around and seeing who else has our backs. Now there's times for that and that's appropriate, but at some point we have to stop and stop looking around and going, who else is with me? And we have to say, you know what? God is with me. And that's it. That's all I need. That's all that's important. So Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. This is significant because often when we cry out to the Lord and we ask him to save us, we are rightly asking him to save us now from that circumstance. And that's right to do. Like if, you're, if we're in a tight spot in a horrible situation, it is totally appropriate to cry out and say, God, save us now. But Paul has come to this understanding that sometimes God's saving action won't happen in this life. It will happen in the age to come. 
and he trusts in that. We have a deeper hope than just escaping the trap that we're in right now. God calls us in the trap, whatever trap we're in right now, to live faithfully for him, to live our lives for him, and to trust that one day all will be made right. One of the biggest hurdles to living a life of faithfulness today, running a race with perseverance, is this thing called comparison. We know from Paul's other letters that he fought against this in his own ministry. There were other Greek teachers who would say really awesome, beautiful, amazing rhetorical things, and they would tickle the ears of all the people in the uh, different villages where they would go into. They targeted the intelligentsia and the wealthy of the day, and so they were seen as more successful. They probably earned a lot more money and donations than Paul did. But instead, Paul chose a different route. He chose the route of the kingdom of God, which Jesus said is like the mustard seed, like the person who chooses the end of the table instead of the best seat at the table. It looks small, it looks insignificant, but it's the better way. Jesus told another parable, the one that we read today, about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both went up to the temple and prayed. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, which right in and of itself, we can kind of laugh at him. God, thank you I'm not like other people. <laughs> Whoa. Um, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. And he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. This guy would have been seen in the Jewish world and to Jesus' first uh, hearers as a hero. He did everything right. So probably as Jesus is telling this parable, the disciples are going, yeah, that's the hero in this story. But no, Jesus changes it a bit. Notice the word I in what the Pharisee says. The focus is on his own work, on what he has done. And I would suggest that this Pharisee would also be a hero in American culture in some ways. He's a self-made man. He's done everything right in his own eyes. We love the self-made hero, don't we? The one who doesn't need anybody else but himself. The lone cowboy, right? Who accomplished everything and got all the bad guys all by himself. The text even says that he stood by himself. I think that's a literary device, that he stood separate. He stood all alone. But he uses his time of prayer to shame other people. We live today in a shaming culture. We live in a call-out culture, don't we? We take opportunities on social media to call out people's bad behavior and then make sure that everyone knows that we don't approve of them. One of the things that, because I do think it is appropriate in our lives to recognize where evil exists, where brokenness exists. That's being prophetic when we're led by the Holy Spirit. When we're not led by the Holy Spirit, it's just pathetic, right? I'm sorry, I had to, that wasn't even in the text. I was just, I can't even. <laughs> One of the things I hate about social media is that there's very little room for empathy and for nuance that it's hard to engage with someone and really step into their shoes. It's hard for them to feel your heart and to see your face. It's hard to talk about things that aren't polarized one side or the other and say maybe there's kind of some conversation and some relationship to be had here. Everyone on social media is either right or wrong. And I think it's because real face-to-face -face life has been short-circuited in our culture. Relationships, I think, can be bolstered by the virtual world in some ways, but they can't be sustained. Real relationships can't be sustained without real life-on-life -life 
conversation and relationship. The Pharisee in this story takes the opportunity to declare, I am part of the right group and I thank you that I am not like him. The tax collector though has a different response. The text tells us, remember the text told us that the Pharisee stood all by himself. Well, the tax collector, it says, stands at a distance, probably because he was not welcome into the temple proper. He was far away. And this is because a tax collector was a shamed member of society. He was seen as one who cheated his own people, who collaborated with the empire and was a traitor. The tax collector knows he can't play the comparison game. He can't. He has nothing to stack up against the Pharisee. He has nothing to stack up against any holy person in that world. But the little secret here is that neither the Pharisee nor the tax collector has a leg to stand on. Do you think God is impressed by the Pharisee's piety? The Pharisee's piety is false because all of that good stuff that he did has also led him to shame and reject the other. It's worthless. If you do all the good works in the world, but it causes you to shame and reject the people you're supposed to bless, that's nothing, right? The tax collector's first word is not I, like the Pharisee. His first word is God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector, in a strange turn of events, is the one in the story who knows the appropriate posture of prayer. The appropriate posture of prayer is, God, I need you. In fact, the Desert Fathers advocated a prayer that we still pray today called the Jesus Prayer. And it's simple. If you can't ever remember, if you, if you can't remember the Lord's Prayer, if you can't remember any of the written prayers that you've learned, if you don't even know the words to say from your own heart in that moment, a good prayer to pray is this one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is really the posture of prayer. That every breath in our lungs every move with our bodies are rooted in the mercies of God. It is mercy that God created us out of his grace and out of his love. It is mercy and love that sustains us. It is mercy and love that redeems us. And it is mercy and love that restores us, that puts us back together. Jesus in this story affirms the posture of the tax collector saying that he's the one who went away justified. Why? Because justification comes not from our badges of piety, but from God and trusting in him. This leads us to a question. What is it that lasts? What is it in this world that we do that actually has lasting impact, that actually makes it into God's new world? What is that? What is it that we do or participate in now that will mean something at the end of our present age? Well, I'll tell you this, how we stack up against others won't last. Everything that we do, even good things that are built on the premise of status, separation, or shaming are not gonna make it into God's new world. And yet, I do believe that somehow God invites us to put our hands to things that will last in his new world. There are rewards that are organically connected to what we do now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that three things will remain in God's new world, faith, 
hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So I believe that whatever we do in this life that is rooted in faith, in the trust in God, that matters. Whatever we do in this life that is rooted in hope, the longing for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that will last. And whatever we do in love, self-giving love in the way of Jesus. And I don't know how it all will work out. I don't know how God's gonna do that. But somehow those things that are rooted in self-giving love will last into God's new world. No, they aren't precious jewels that can be cashed out or make us look sparkly and more sparkly than everyone else in God's new world. That's not how the rewards work. Instead, when we submit ourselves to God's lordship, when we begin with God instead of with I, it's like we're learning the language of heaven, that we're learning and studying this language that will make sense and will be this organic reward in this new place when all is made right. Every act of faith, hope, and love is the process of building a house that will be lived in forever. Now, to be more accurate, we may be more like the eight-year-old assistants who helped their dad build the house, right? They may be able to put their hand to a hammer, but it's really him who's doing the building. But God calls us into that. He allows us to put hand to hammer, but he is the one who builds the house. I believe that God is building something in our midst. A new world has dawned in the resurrection of Jesus, and it is being formed among us. And we get to be part of it. So my prayer for us today is may we run the race well. May we be willing to be poured out for the sake of the kingdom, even if that means that everybody else abandons us. And may we constantly look to the righteous judge, the one whose verdict matters, and anticipate the reward of his kingdom where all is made right. Amen.